lot to jump in. Because Song Company has some foundational things that we talk about each and every year. It's three things. It's Bible, community, and mission. And tonight, we're going to be talking about the Bible. I don't know kind of what your frame of reference is when it comes to the Bible, but I recognize that in a room this size, I'm sure people come from many different backgrounds with many different thoughts on the Bible. But simply put, the Bible is a book. I'm sure somebody around you has one. It's a book that um, people have based their entire lives, their belief systems, worldviews around this book. Entire communities have been formed around the book called the Bible. It's the most purchased book in all of history, translated in over 380 languages. The average American household owns three of them. So to say the least, the Bible has been a significant, significant book because people see it as foundational, as do we here at Salt Company. We see it as foundational. But more than it being a book, it's a story. And it's a story that has highs, lows, left, right, tension, paradox, irony, conflict, wins, losses, a climax, everything in between that makes for an epic story. And it speaks to all of life's issues, the good, the bad, the ugly, love, joy, suffering, disappointment. And the story that we're going to look at tonight in this book called the Bible has to do with that last word, disappointment. Anybody ever been disappointed before in your life? Right? All of us at, at some level. Nobody. Great. Or whoever was that guy uh, <laughs> who said never. Um, at some level, all of us have experienced disappointment. I can remember this one time when I was in college where I went with two of my best friends uh, on a big road trip out west and uh, which side note, why is that a thing? Why when you go to college, it's like, you know what, there's just this like innate desire to go to Idaho. You, you guys want to pack a van and just go? When in high school, all you cared about was going to the Taco Bell parking lot and chilling with your friends who had Jeeps, right? You lay home in high school, now you want to go to Idaho. I don't know why it happens, but I caught the bug. We go out west, and uh, one of our first stops out west was the mighty Grand Canyon. Who's been to the Grand Canyon? Beautiful. If you've been to the Grand Canyon or not, you know that it is one beautiful, but you can see all of it from the top. So whether you hike down into it or whether you stand up top, like you can see it. It's, it's just as beautiful from the outside as it is from the inside. But we're in college, uh, we're out west, we're on our spiritual pilgrimage. So we're like, let's do a hike in this hole in the earth. And so uh, we talked to one of the guides at the Great Canyon and we're like, okay, what hike should we do? And this guide is like, you guys look young and athletic. You should do Horseshoe Mesa. So we're like, okay, we'll do Horseshoe Mesa. Side note, Horseshoe Mesa is insanely difficult, okay? Have in mind, terribly di difficult. So we're like sick, we're gonna attack that. So we strap up our boots, throw on our camelback that we purchased for this trip, having nothing on our stomach except peanut butter sandwiches and fast food, and I threw a cliff bar in a little bag and some trail mix, and we hit Horseshoe Mesa. And let me just say, this is not an understatement. I kid you not, this was not only the most difficult hike I have ever done in my entire life, 
This was the most difficult physical exertion I have ever had to give in my entire life. Because remember, the Grand Canyon, you see it from the top. From the top, you just walk down into this canyon, which means on the way down, we're like, skippity doo da. We're like having a blast going down because it's easy, right? So we're, we're like cooking down. It's great. Midday, it looks beautiful. The problem with the Grand Canyon is you have to come back up. And so we turn around, we see the site of which we could have seen while we were at top, and we turn around, and I'm not kidding, like 11 minutes and 14 seconds into the way up. I was like, oh my goodness, we are so utterly unprepared for this moment. All I have is a cliff bar, and like, this water is lukewarm. This is not going to be a good day at all. And so it got to the point where I literally was like just walking so slow. And one of the most triggering things was there was this guy who was like a gazelle prancing on this trail. He was trail running for Shumesa. And we had started back up the hill like an hour within, and I see this gazelle-like man prance down in cool trail running shoes, and he passes me before I make it back up. He runs past me. Disappointment, you could say that is an absolute understatement. We heard this guy, hey, you guys are Athletic, you're young, it'll be great. Do Horseshoe Mesa. Sweet, we'll do Horseshoe Mesa. We thought it was gonna be easy, it was horrible. Disappointment is the reality of what happens in between the gap of what we expected and what we actually experienced. We expected the hike was gonna be easy, great, glorious, and what we experienced was death. <laughs> I thought I would never make it out alive, but here we are. Disappointment happened to me on that trail. And Luke 24 is where we're going to be tonight. And it's kind of a story, to be honest, of two men finding themselves on a road of disappointment with weary expectations, crushed dreams. But the crazy thing about these two guys that we're going to look at is the source of their disappointment actually has to do with God. Anybody in here feel like you might be on a road of disappointment? Whether it's somebody letting you down, maybe you're letting somebody else down. Maybe some of you in here tonight resonate with the reality of feeling deep disappointment with what you expected God to do, and yet what you're experiencing right now in your life. And the question that I kind of want to ask tonight and, and wrestle with is, what does God say to and do for people who feel like or are on the road of disappointment. It's Luke chapter 24, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible or Luke, it's basically one of the four biography type of writings about the life of Jesus, and we enter into Luke's gospel at the most important part. But in order to understand the most important part of Luke's gospel, we've got to understand the most important person, and that is Jesus classic churchy answer, but Jesus is the most important figure in which Luke writes about. Why is Jesus important, you might ask? Because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, which is just a fancy way to say chosen one. People thought that he was going to be, at least in the first century Jews' mind, he was going to be the one, the Messiah, the chosen one who was to redeem Israel, which Israel is just God's people in the Old Testament. 
And for the average first century Jew, the idea that a king would redeem Israel was kind of a talk, the talk of the town. It's kind of what people had on the edge of their lips. But when they spoke about redemption, it had more of a political connotation than anything else. Because people thought of the glory days under King David in the Old Testament. And so when people were talking about this king that was this Messiah that was going to come and rule Israel, the picture that would come to their mind was this idea that Israel would be restored back to its past uh, prosperity and greatness like it experienced under King David. And so Messiah began to sound more like a political idea rather than a, a, a theological one or a God idea. And any time a political or national ideology begins to eclipse a God-centered theology, sketchy things can happen. And one of the things that happened in the story that we're going to look at tonight, and specifically all of the Gospels, is people had a fundamental misunderstanding of who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. So because of the political climate of Jesus' day, people thought that he was going to be this conquering warrior messiah that they had always dreamed of the one who was going to save them from the oppression of the roman people but instead the story that we read tonight starts out where jesus this projected warrior king has actually just been executed on a roman cross and there's rumors running around of whether he's out of the grave or not but these two disciples that we enter into the story with aren't certain it's luke chapter 24 Verse 13. Now that time, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. Anybody ever gone on a long road trip with somebody? Right? And the longer you're in a car, it's like 15 hours in a 2011 Toyota Avalon headed to the Grand Canyon, and things kind of heat up. You can get frustrated at one another. Well, these, these two men that we're going to be kind of watching this story unfold, they're on quite a walking road trip, walking away from Jerusalem. But music is not their playlist. The topic of conversation is kind of the current events of the day, the daily news. And as they travel, things begin to heat up. Verse 15. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? Now this is getting pretty wild. Because remember, at this point in Luke's gospel, the most important part, we're not sure whether the most important person actually has walked out of the grave or not. And here Jesus is showing up to these two random people on this random road, but they can't recognize him. In fact, it says they were prevented from seeing him. But you and I as readers are given insight into the fact that Jesus is alive. But these disciples aren't privy to that information just yet. We'll keep reading. So they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? There's two things that are significant about this comment. One, 
the straight up two at which Cleopas responds to this third traveler of whom he has no idea is actually the risen Lord Jesus. Uh, but even more so than that, Jesus is rolling in on this conversation in which the tension is thick. Cleopas and, and his friend, it's important to recognize that, that not only was this the topic of conversation for, for him and his friend as they're walking down this road, but they point out that this was the topic of conversation for virtually everyone and anyone surrounding Jerusalem. And that's important to note because it shows us how important people thought Jesus of Nazareth to be in this moment. And Cleopas is acting as if this third traveler, who we know is Jesus, he doesn't, is walking up and asking a silly question. It'd be like somebody walking up to you March 25th in 2020 and saying, huh, COVID-19? What's that? And you'd be like, how have you not seen like what is going on in the world right now? This is wild. So Cleopas was acting as if some life-altering event had taken place, and this guy should know about it, because some life-altering event had taken place, namely the death of Jesus. So humoring men, Jesus continues in verse 19, what things? He asked them. Now Jesus is asking about the events that literally pertain to himself, whether he is alive or dead, which is interesting. And he wants to hear these disciples or former disciples speak about and describe in their point of view what has happened. And maybe, just maybe, he's asking that. Because Jesus knows that their answer to this question is actually going to reveal what they believe to be true about the Messiah. Their framework of the Messiah. Verse 19, so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. So here we find how these disciples think about Jesus. He was a prophet, mighty in action and word. I mean, these are pretty significantly honoring words to be talking about Jesus this way. But there's one word we don't find in how they describe Jesus, and that's Messiah. And why is that? Because in their framework, this prophet was crucified. And surely no Messiah's life would end that way. Verse 21, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And it's in this text particularly that we begin to get to the heart of the matter. Because it's here in which their disappointment and their expectations are exposed. And their unbelief. And there seems kind of to be a build of unbelief. Of, of what they expected, to what they were experiencing, to what they were hearing about what they what they were experiencing, to ultimately what they believed. They expected that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. They were experiencing third-day silence. They were hearing that the grave was empty, but they were believing it was just kind of rumors. 
Nothing significant. Now, if you or I are Jesus in this moment, I don't know what you would do, but I would roll the curtain down, be like, Blam, suckers, you should have believed me. I said I was going to come back three days from now. Why didn't you believe me? I just immediately fixed the problem. But Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's interesting. Because I think there's a few things we need to lean into on this rebuke. Jesus rebukes these disciples, but here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say how foolish you are and how slow to believe the rumors that your good friends are saying about them. He doesn't say how foolish you are and how slow to believe the vision from the angels that the grave is empty. No. What does he say? He says how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Think of the prophets as just the writers of the Old Testament. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus is showing in this moment that these disciples, the issue wasn't that they were doubting rumors. They were doubting written revelation of the revealed word of God in the Old Testament. They were doubting the Bible. And Jesus is saying, had you have read the Bible with a proper understanding of what it said and predicted about the Messiah, you would have recognized that popular, contrary to popular opinion and contrary to what you expected, the Messiah actually had to suffer to enter into glory. This is the same misunderstanding that one of Jesus' best friends had, right? Peter. Jesus pulls some of his closest friends together and he says, all right, people are talking. Who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some people say John the Baptist, and some people say Elijah, and some people say a prophet. And then he takes a step closer, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, right you are. And on this rock, I will build my church. And it's immediately after this. That Jesus then brings his disciples closer and says, okay, now that you have my identity, I actually have to go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests and rulers, and die. And what does Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside and says, not on my watch. That's not Messiah talk, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the concerns of God on your mind. So... Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah, but it was a confession to a Messiah that was crafted by the people and yet foreign to the plan of God. In a messianic framework in which people expected and depended on a conquering king, suffering had 0.00000% place in that sort of framework. To suffer is to lose, to conquer is to win, our king Messiah will conquer. That's what people thought. And these disciples on the road to Emmaus, the road of disappointment, are revealing the source of their discontents that Jesus of Nazareth, <coughs> mighty in action and word, man, we were hoping he would be the Messiah, but he's dead. And so we'll walk and we'll wait. 
And if I'm Jesus, again, I'm either showing myself to fix this problem or I'm just leaving. But here's what I love about Jesus. Verse 27 says this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This could have been a moment where Jesus gives up and says, you know what? You lack clarity. I'm out. Could have been a moment where Jesus says, you don't get it. I'm going to go to somebody else who does. But he doesn't do that. What does Jesus do? He brings clarity to their misunderstanding. And how does he do that? By interpreting the scriptures or the Bible concerning himself. Showing how he was the point of the Bible. Remember, all of this is while being hidden from them. The irony of this story is that the person who was once the source of their unrivaled hope and, and now is the source of their dashed hope is standing right in front of them, and they don't even know it. Let's see what happens next. Verse 28. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. This is where the cat's out of the bag. It's getting late. They reach the destination. They're like, Jesus, they don't know he's Jesus. They're travelers. Stay with us. Night falls, hitting, they go inside, break bread, give thanks, and it's right there in that moment that they see the resurrected Lord. They recognize who it is, and then he disappears from their sight. And here's what they say, verse 32. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? The burning of these two disciples' hearts was not just because of the nature of the conversation that they were talking with the resurrected Lord without knowing it. It was also because of the subject of the conversation, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. And this is significant because Jesus spends an entire conversation concealing his identity from them when it is his identity that they're frustrated at in the first place. That is the source of their disappointment. And I think, for me, it brings up a necessary question. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus withhold himself from just showing that he's resurrected? That's going to be the quickest fix, right? They're unbelieving. They think the Messiah is gone. Just show yourself, Jesus, and then they'll believe. And I wonder if Jesus knows and understands something that you and I, and these disciples, do not. Because could it be that for these disciples to see Jesus' resurrected body without understanding it and its proper scriptural significance would actually not be enough to sustain long-term belief. That to see the sign and wonder of the resurrection, this incredible thing, without actually understanding that it was the purpose for which Christ came as the Messiah, to come and die. That to just simply see it without understanding it would bring no lasting understanding at all of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and why he went there in the first place. Now, had Jesus have just shown himself, maybe these disciples would have been 
looking at yet another neat Messiah trick in this cool Messiah's handbook that leaves them impressed but does absolutely nothing to alter the way in which they think about the Messiah. See, the, the miraculous work of God, which we all want, the miraculous work of God without a proper understanding of the Word of God leaves us marveling at His power without understanding its purpose. Which is why we see in the Gospels, Jesus has this tendency, this consistency to withdraw from crowds in which he's just worked miracle after miracle and healing after healing. That could be described no other way than that he is the Messiah. He actually pulls back and says, don't tell people that I'm the Messiah. When demons say, you're the Holy One of God, he says, be quiet, conceal that. Why would he do that? There is this apprehension of Jesus, the Son of God. To not give in to the pressures of people's messianic desires because he understands that to do so would actually be to throw him off the very plan of God of which he came to save those people from their sins. Because people wanted to force him into Messiahship. Be our king. They loved his works. Didn't understand God's word. In fact, in times where Jesus actually sought to bring clarity about what it's about God's word, about what it meant to follow him. Hey, actually lay down your life, pick up your cross, follow me. That's when people were like, whoa, hey, just do cool stuff. Keep doing the miracles. Like, give us bread, do the bread thing again. Don't say that you're the bread of life. If that's what you mean, we're out. The crowds throughout Jesus' ministry didn't understand. Peter didn't understand. <coughs> nor do these disciples and if we're being honest, nor do we. Jesus says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and get to his glory? And Jesus graciously goes on to explain to these two disciples a paradigm in which they could not fathom. That it was actually through suffering in which the Messiah would conquer. That the suffering servant would only be conquering king. By the way of the cross and resurrection. There was no other way. Jesus asked for it. And I think when we read a story like this in scripture, there is this subtle temptation for you and I that because we're let in on the secret of the most important person and the most important part of the most important story in the world, because we're let in on the fact that, oh, he's alive, because we recognize that he's the third traveler, he's walking with these two disciples, and they don't know, there is this temptation to read this story, say amen to the sermon, close our Bibles, skippity-doo-dah on out of salt company, high-five, turn our car keys on, and actually believe that you and I don't do the very same thing every single day. We have, as human beings, this unreal capacity to form and fashion gods according to our likeness and our image and our expectations. One that conquers that which we command it to conquer. And when slash if it doesn't, we say, God, how could you? How could you allow me to walk on the road of disappointment? You were supposed to fix this. You were supposed to prevent this. I wasn't supposed to be here this long. 
That's why you came, right? Just do the stuff. Just fix the issue. And this has been the age-old temptation, right? To, to not allow or trust God to speak for himself and define what it means for God to be God and for Jesus to be our Messiah, to not trust, obey, and follow his word, and yet at the same time demand that he works. We say, God, I want to see you move in my life, but I'm going to decide the boundaries of our relationships. God, I really want to see your kingdom expand this year on campus, but I'll decide what my future career is. Lord, I want to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but I'm going to decide if I share that thing that I know I should share or not. I'll, I'll cover that. Why do we do that? Because I think it's easier to speak on behalf of a God that we assume is silent than open up this word and let him speak for himself. To uh, form and fashion a Messiah that helps us when we need it, affirms us that we're okay, rather than sit at his feet, listen intently to his word and say, whatever you say, I trust you. You don't trust. Me too. We don't trust that what God, the God of the universe has for us is so much better than what we could ever have for ourselves. How could a suffering Messiah have anything to offer me? And the reality is he has everything. And we struggle to trust. And so we fashion and we form and we create a God who ends up looking a lot more like us than King Jesus. And for all of us, this is the age-old temptation. Garden of Eden, right? Did God really say, don't eat the fruit? Just eat the fruit. Or like what Jason talked about last week in the desert. Did God really say you have to be obedient to him alone? Just bow down and worship him. I mean, his angels will save you, right? Peter, did God really say you have to suffer Jesus? Eh, that's how Messiah talk. We don't talk about that. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, Dying for the sins of humanity, people wagging their heads, spouting accusations, and saying, if you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. And these disciples in Luke 24 say, you know, we thought he would redeem Israel, but he's dead, and we can't find the body, and our hopes are kind of dashed, and so we're just walking on the road of disappointment. They thought that they wanted a conquering Messiah, but what does Jesus do for them on the road of disappointment? He shows them how to read the Bible. So company, to, to live lives that are under God's word is to first look intently at, study, cherish, be grateful for, love God's very word and breath on a page so that he does not conform to our image and begin to look like us, but the opposite is true. That we conform to his image. Jesus was showing something to these two disciples in Luke 24. And I think he's showing us something tonight. That we must understand God as he has revealed himself in these holy scriptures. So that we can appropriately and rightly behold and cherish his wonderful work. His miraculous work. Which is why the psalmist would say it this way. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts. Why? 
so that I can meditate on your wonders. God's word and his works are not mutually exclusive, but one must be foundational to the other. And it is only when we rightly understand God at his word that we can rightly interpret and cherish the works that he does in our lives and the lives of those around us. Now, here's the good news. The beauty of the gospel is that even when we find ourselves on the road of disappointment, having expectations of God based on a faulty misunderstanding in the first place, guess what? He initiates to us. Because while the road to Emmaus is the road of disappointment, we'll find out just a moment that it actually becomes a road to redemption. Because the story doesn't end. It goes further. Verse 33. That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those who were gathered with them together who said, The Lord has truly been raised. He appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. They started out in nothing but disappointment. They ended in hope. How could you get to that place? Because Jesus stepped in. Jesus initiated with them. And he does that with you and with me. And that's good news. That he draws near to you and I as lonely, no-name disciples on a road not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. He draws near to you and to me as doubting, disbelieving disciples who made an image of God and expected him to live up to that. And when he did it, we were crushed. He still draws near to us on the road of disappointment. He draws near to us. When we act as though he hasn't seen the beginning from the end, as though he is not the beginning from the end, he draws near to us as broken, weary, sinful human beings whose hopes are dashed because of a misunderstanding we had in the first place. He draws near to us, and you know what he does? He invites us to the table to sit at his feet, to listen to his word, and to allow God to speak for himself to us and let that shape everything that we do and say. We as human beings, I don't think I have to say this, we have always struggled to understand what God has said and to know more and understand more about God. That's not what this story is about, more so than this story pointing to the lack of humanity's ability to properly interpret God's word so that they can see God's miraculous work. This story is about Jesus being faithful to the word of God unlike anybody else had done before, which is why he was the Messiah. He actually was. He obeyed the law and prophets perfectly when you and I could not. He obeyed the will of the Father when you and I doubted. He stepped in when we were on the road of disappointment, mad at him, and he said, I'll take it. Because if it's up to you, you'll either, you'll either want to make me king or kill me. And even then, he spread his arms on a cross and he died for you. So that when you believe in him, you get to then experience the new resurrection life that he has to offer. And in that new resurrection life, you get to recognize the beauty of God's work. That what he says is, is as sweet as honey. That to taste and see that the Lord is good, you get to then have new desires as a new creation, resurrected with him. So that every morning, every evening, 
you don't think about a decision, you don't think about a moment without saying, wait, God, what have you said about this? Because that's where I've got to be first. So I'm coming I wonder what this room would look like and what this city would look like if we took God at his word. If we were a people who were under the word of God every single day of our lives and said, speak to me, Lord, because without you, I'm going to have crushed dreams, bad expectations, and dashed hopes. Speak to me, God. Or as the psalmist would pray, help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. Would you pray with me? Holy God, you are good. Even when we struggle to trust, and in our struggle to trust you at your word, we then justify things and say, well, yeah, I think God, I'm going to do this. And we, we justify, and we don't sit at your feet. And even then, Jesus, you initiated with us. You came to this broken world. You lived the perfect life that you, me as a human being, could never live. And you died the death that I deserved. You raised a new life so that I don't have to just struggle with my humanity anymore. I can trust your goodness, your perfect righteousness. And in that trust, in that belief, I find new life. So tonight, God, we want to be people who live under your word. Not assuming that you've said things where you haven't. But sitting on your word, sitting at your feet, and being taught by you and you alone. We love you, Lord, today.